Hello, I'm Zev Newworth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Friends, our topic today is uh, value-based healthcare and more specifically, employer-based healthcare. I've had the pleasure of speaking with and interviewing David Contorno a number of times, but the specific reason I have today for inviting him on is to really focus on dispelling some of the myths and misconceptions about employer-based healthcare and more generally about value-based healthcare. It's such a big topic. As all of you know, employers fund nearly 50% of all the healthcare in this country. Now, before I formally reintroduce Dave, I would like to make a request of you all. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review. It helps others find the podcast. Also, if you find value in it, please share it uh, with others through LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, whatever social media you like to use. A growing number of you are doing this, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate you spreading the message and the mission of creating a new healthcare. Now, David Contorno spent the first 20 years of his career honing his skill and has become a leading nationally recognized expert in employee benefits, consulting to large national employers. Now, with his sights firmly set on, I would say, reframing what he was doing, David created ePowered Benefits, a benefit consulting firm with a clearly defined mission to deliver a different benefit experience that is based on full transparency. And we're gonna hear a lot more about that. His business model has produced average one year savings of over 40%. Let me say that again. His business model has produced average one year savings of over 40%. Now, what employer wouldn't want that, along with substantially reducing out-of-pocket costs for the employees? And I think that's such an important point. David has won numerous recognitions and awards. He's been a major contributor to the work and the publications that Dave Chase has produced out of Health Rosetta, as well as contributing to the work of nationally recognized author, Dr. Marty Macri. David also has a very serious commitment to giving back to the community, and he has created a mentorship program within his consulting firm that allows him to mentor fellow advisors from around the country sharing his business model to contribute to the professional growth of others, which I, I think is just super fantastic. Uh, David, again, uh, such a great, great privilege to have you back on uh, Creating New Healthcare. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Zev. I'm excited to share what's occurred since we last spoke. And I'm excited to learn about it. I've heard you on a number of different podcasts and super excited. So here's what I'd like to do, though. I want to jump in and instead of going broad, I want to start narrow uh, with a question for you, uh, a couple of questions. The first is, so it, it seems to me that the payers, the insurance carriers in healthcare are much more aligned uh, around value-based payment uh, because they're taking risk and they should be focused on lowering the inappropriate or an unnecessary cost of care. Um, and I would think that they would welcome your approach in terms of transparency and value-based care. But from what I've heard you say, that's not exactly the case. So could you share a little bit about that, shed some light on that topic? Yeah, sure. I think this is fundamentally the light bulb that employers need to understand. There's a reason why their healthcare costs keep going up every year. And it's a really simple reason. It's because every entity that an employer trusts to manage healthcare costs 
benefit from costs going up. The average broker, for example, is paid commission. So as a client's rates go up, how much money they make goes up. And that's just the disclosed compensation. There's a whole bunch of undisclosed compensation. But let's talk about how an insurance company makes money. So on a fully insured basis, which is a huge majority of the employers in the U.S., at least from a number of employer perspective, um, there is something called the medical loss ratio provision of the Affordable Care Act. And it says that every fully insured insurance company must spend either 80 or 85 cents of every dollar they collect on healthcare costs for the people on their plan. That means they get to keep either 15 or 20%, just depending on the size of the employer. And that 15 or 20% represents their own overhead plus their profit. Well, 15 or 20% of a bigger number is, of course, a bigger number. And so the only way for an insurance company to deliver more profit on their fully insured business is to is for claims to increase so that they can increase premium, so that they can increase the percentage that they keep. And if you look at the performance of the insurance companies, you see that they are delivering on that quite well. So despite popular belief, insurance companies don't benefit from denying claims. As a matter of fact, we find that typically when they deny claims, they're denying the high value care, the ones that are likely to cure you or treat you in the least intervention possible so that you skip over that care and go to the much higher cost, higher intervention care, like making it difficult to go to a physical therapist or a chiropractor, but super easy to go to a spine surgeon, for example. And we see that all over the place. We see it in primary care. We see it in mental health, where that high value care is consistently being devalued in the form of lower reimbursement rates to providers and easier access with no cost differential for employees to go to those specialists and that higher intervention of care. So uh, I, employers need to understand that insurance companies benefit from claims going up not going down. If they went, if they kept them down, they'd have to return much of that money. One comment, there's going to be some employers listening to this who say, but I'm self-insured, so that doesn't apply to me. And you're right, the medical loss ratio provision itself doesn't apply to a self-insured plan. But what most employers have done is that they've still contracted with the same Blue Cross United Cigna Aetna to manage the plan in exactly the same way on the same claims administration platforms, the same pharmacy benefit contracts, the same PPO contracts, the same medical management. And they, and they expect the results are going to be different, which is silly because literally everything happening within the plan is exactly the same as a fully insured plan. The last thing I want to say is there's a notion that fully insured carriers take risk, that they pay for claims, that they're the payer of healthcare. They're as much the payer of healthcare as my accountant is the payer of my taxes. They just tell us who to pay and how much, but they don't actually pay for anything. You can demonstrate that by every employer's renewal every year, where those increased costs get pushed right back on the employer and the employees every single year, year after year after year. So that was really super helpful. Um, how does, though, you know, when you talked about that uh, 80 or 85%, that is the medical loss ratio that they're required to spend. So it does uh, limit the total to about 15%, as you said, overhead and profit. Now, how by allowing higher cost spending, wouldn't that raise the MLR? I mean, how do they raise that 15% that above the MLR? How does that grow for the insurance carriers? Well, here's the way I'll, I'll give simple math. Let's pretend that I'm running a health plan for the state of North Carolina. I, let's say I run United Healthcare for North Carolina. Every year I have to get my rates filed with the Department of Insurance according to the ACA. So a few months ago, I would have had to start to file those rates. And so I would go to my actuaries, really well-paid, very intelligent team of actuaries. 
And I'd ask them to predict how much everybody in North Carolina on a fully insured United Healthcare plan is going to spend in 2022 on medical and prescription costs. Let's use easy numbers. Let's pretend they come back with a number of $850 million. So I say to myself, okay, I'm going to set my premiums around North Carolina to ensure that I bring in a billion dollars. So I have that $850 million to pay the claims plus $150 million for my overhead and profit. Well, if they hit that $850 million and they're amazingly good at it, they get to keep the full $150 million. If they overshoot that, that eats into their $150 million. If they undershoot that, then they have to return money. But I will tell you, like in New York State, this last year, United Healthcare ran an 84.9% loss ratio. I mean, they nailed it almost to the tenth of a percent miraculously. And so when they go to set their rates for next year, part of what's included in those predicted costs is an inflation in the healthcare costs. Now, why do healthcare costs inflate every year? It's really simple. Again, if anyone on this call could actually get their hands on the contracts, particularly between the insurance companies and the hospitals, especially the large hospital systems, they will see that there's an 8, 9, 10% escalator clause in those contracts, allowing the hospital systems to raise their reimbursement rates by 8 or 9 or 10% a year. That's good for the hospital. It helps keep them happy, helps keep them in the carrier's network. And it's good for the insurance company because they can predictably predict what that increase is going to be next year so that they miraculously raise their rates 8, 9, 10, 12% a year. No coincidence that the average rate increase is similar to the average escalator clause in the hospital contracts. That's what allows them to predict that and be right on the mark, but make sure that it, that it goes up every year inflationarily. So it's really the insurance carriers are looking at the, the top number, that 100%. And like you say, they're adding in hospital escalation costs year over year, plus their own escalation costs. And so they predict what 100% should be, and then they work backwards from that. So medical loss ratio, that 85% will increase uh, to keep up with the increased 100% so that they are not cutting, like you said, if they if they overdo the MLR, it cuts into their revenue, into their margin. And if they underdo it, they're going to have to give the money back. So it's really the top line, the total that they're actually calculating and estimating and then working backwards. So in essence, they are building in in order to make uh, more money, absolute money from that 15%. That has to grow. And therefore, the MLR has to grow, which means that actually medical costs increase, which means that they're year over year. I mean, if I'm you know following this logic they become less and less cautious about uh, managing the cost of care. That's correct. And we've seen that in the outcomes of the U.S. healthcare system. But there is one other thing that I want to point out. Most insurance companies are publicly traded entities. That means from a legal perspective, they exist to serve one entity and one entity only, and that is their shareholders. If they were to knowingly reduce profit, which they would have to reduce claims in order to reduce profit, they would literally violate the only fiduciary and legal responsibility they have. So by lowering costs, by doing what employers think they should be doing and think they are doing, or at least they think they're keeping them down as much as possible, they would violate the only responsibility they legally have to their shareholders if they actually did that. And the evidence of them not doing that is the evidence of everyone's in renewal for the last 20 or 30 years, you know, minus one in 10 or one in 12, that's happening for a reason. And I promise you, it's the profit motivation of the average broker 
and the average insurance company that's driving that. Right. So that this definitely explains the the year over year increase we, we've been seeing. What is it? Something like five to seven percent a year? Is it is that about right? Or it's gone down a little bit from the ACA. It was prior to the ACA and the medical loss ratio. It was inflating at twelve or fourteen percent a year. Now it's somewhere between seven and nine percent on average. But I will tell you that's the medical trend. But what we're seeing this year from claiming that the COVID suppression last year that's now bursting out, they claim, we're seeing fully insured plans. We don't manage any of those traditional plans anymore, but employers are coming to us with more and more 30, 40, 60, even 80% renewal increases this year. So I think the pain point is only getting worse. And I wonder how the large health systems and large insurance carriers don't understand that at some point it's going to break. I mean, literally those types of numbers on top of the numbers that are already being paid are just not affordable. I'm going to venture to say that 95% or more of the people who are listening to this are unaware of what you're talking about. The sort of built-in, if you would, conflict of interest that the publicly traded insurance carriers are, they really have a conflict of interest. And to your point, their their interest primarily is in their shareholders. And like you said, they're this is a you know explaining why the costs are increasing tr- so tremendously. You know, I could imagine someone asking the question, you know, the so what question. It's like, well, it's capitalism; they're allowed to uh, make as much money as they can. What is the either from an employer, um, so a corporate America from an employer perspective uh, outside of the health insurance industry? What is the harm to employers, and and maybe even more important than that, or just as important is. What is the harm to the actual individual employees and their families in these sorts of increases? How has this impacted over the past decades and currently the individual? My issue with the insurance company, the broker, and the health systems making money is not inherently them making money. It's how they make money and how uh, they make money in comparison to their message in the market. That's what really drives me crazy. Hospital systems insurance companies, drug companies, they don't make money by getting people healthy. They don't make money by making healthcare higher quality. They don't make money by making healthcare lower cost. They make money in the exact opposite of those things. And yet their marketing messages, whether it's that health system billboard or that insurance carrier PDF to the employer about what they do, is completely opposite that. And and to be honest with you, I have to say shame on employers to some extent for allowing this to creep up their P&L to where it's number two, three, four, or five for most companies without demanding answers, without asking pointed questions like they do in many other units of their business. And they need to look at this as a business unit. They need to look at this and say, even though I don't want to be, even though when my grandfather started this business, I didn't tend to be, but I'm in the healthcare business. And let's talk about how it's impacting. Forget employers for a minute. Let's talk about the employees. The number one cause of bankruptcy in the U.S. is medical bills. Probably doesn't surprise most people, but almost three quarters of those people had health insurance. Now, when I studied for my health insurance exam in many years ago, they went through the history of insurance in, in humankind. And insurance has been developed for one reason and one reason only. And that is to protect us from catastrophic financial loss. And if you think of every other type of insurance, life insurance, car insurance, homeowners insurance, disability insurance, every other type of insurance we buy, it's exactly that. It is designed to pay for the very low frequency 
but high severity claims like a house fire, right? But it's not going to pay for, you know, a brick falling out of your facade. But health insurance has become the opposite. Yes, we expect it to pay for those low frequency, high severity claims, but we also have this expectation that it pay for the high frequency, low severity things too. And I think that's part of the problem and has engendered this sense of entitlement. So what's happened as the benefits have eroded year after year, what the average broker comes in with the employer is one of two solutions. And neither one of these makes sense if you think about it. One is let's shop your insurance out. Let's, let's look at Blue Cross, United Signet, and then see who comes in the least expensive. And instead of a 14% increase from your current carrier, we can do similar benefits with another carrier at 9%. But I know 9% is still more than you could budget on that number. So don't worry. I'm going to show you how we can lean out your benefits. We can raise your deductible. We can raise your out-of-pocket. We can put you into a uh, high-deductible health plan, an HSA-compatible plan, which is another word for the leanest plan possible within the scope of plans of a legal in the U.S. But that's not saving money. That's shifting costs from the employer to the employee. It's why, part of why, of course, there's many reasons, but it's part of why the continuation of the deterioration of the health of the state of health of people in this country continued decline because as it becomes more and more expensive for employees to do the day-to-day things and now don't forget they have premium coming out of their paycheck that they now expect to cover the day-to-day things that's when they start to avoid taking their medication every day maybe they split their pills in half maybe they don't check their blood sugar as often as they should maybe they don't see their endocrinologist as often as they should or maybe they're just seeing their endocrinologist and they're diabetic but they're not having their podiatrist look out for diabetic neuropathy or going to an ophthalmologist to check their eyes all of which are comorbidities and risk factors of being diabetic so the deterioration continues of the health of the US while costs continue to escalate and increase so we're spending more and more money and getting less and the reason those two strategies don't work is this. And I, I, was, I supported those strategies for two decades. So I was part of the problem. But if you went to buy a car and your budget was $300 a month, but the car salesman was so good that you wind up with a $1,000 a month car payment to the bank. And a few months later, you're like, I have to lower this car payment. If you switch from Allstate to Geico, even if you save 15% on your car insurance, did you lower your car payment to the bank at all? Not even a little bit. Or what if you raise your deductible on your car insurance from 500 to 1,000? Did you lower that car payment at all? No. So when you do those things, you're saving a little bit on insurance. But like we described before, because of the medical loss ratio, even though employers think the entire check they pay their carrier is insurance, it's actually not true. 85% of that check is healthcare costs. The other 15%, part of that is the insurance. So even if you save 15% on your insurance, you're saving 15% on maybe 10%, which is 1.5%, big deal. So here's my stroke of genius that I say to employers, there's only one way to pay less for healthcare. You have to pay less for healthcare. So if you are not getting the advice of someone that is actively showing you how to get the healthcare that your employees consume to cost less money, I mean, claim by claim, drug by drug, procedure by procedure. If they are incapable of showing you that, they're never going to solve your insurance problem. You're not going to fix healthcare through insurance. You're going to fix your insurance problem, however, by fixing how healthcare is paid for and delivered for your employees. So you're, you're actually going to that 85% and that's your approach. What is the solution? How do you, in ePower Benefits and how do you, you made the shift from being a traditional 
benefits manager kind of doing what you just described for years and years. So you know the game, you know how it's played, you know how to win in the traditional game, which is a catastrophic problem for our country um, and particularly for uh, the employees and their families. What was the switch you made? How, how do you go about it now? Well, listen, I want to clarify some of my comments earlier. I, I don't think most brokers are bad people. You know, it's just like most car salesmen are not bad people. There are some bad ones, just like doctors too, right? Most of them are not bad. Even if they buy into the incentives that are placed before them, it doesn't necessarily make them a bad doctor. And, and brokers who don't come in with real solutions, they're not necessarily bad brokers. But there's an Upton Sinclair quote that I think really summarizes the issue. I wish it was a little less gender specific, but, you know, it's from that time when it was like that. But it says, do not expect a man to understand something in which his paycheck is dependent upon him not understanding it. And so if, if a broker is going to lose money or think they lose money by lowering costs, they're not going to bring you solutions that genuinely, truly do that, probably because they're not aware of them, not because they're actively hiding it from you. So what I changed in this path, and it was a little bit stupidity in retrospect, but I changed how I get paid. And I went from this commission model with tons of incentives from the carriers like trips and uh, sporting events and private jets and dinners, all of which were designed to influence my advice. Like they wouldn't be spending that money if it didn't work for them, just like drug commercials wouldn't be on TV if it didn't work for the drug companies. So um, I changed the way that I get paid. And before I even really knew how to lower healthcare costs, I knew a lot about insurance. But before I really knew how to lower healthcare costs, I went to a client and I said, are you even aware of the entirety with which I'm paid? And if you think about it, most brokers represent themselves as the buyer's agent. They represent themselves as though they're working for the employer, but they're paid by the seller. I mean, imagine if the real estate agent you were using to buy a home also represented the seller of that home you would feel a little bit uneasy and you know, do a little bit of extra checking. And by the way, that's illegal in most states and needs to be disclosed in the states that, that it is legal. So the way that we get paid exclusively is, and this is contractually warranted with our clients, is we only get paid by the client. We work for the client. I believe you work for whomever cuts your paycheck. Clients cut our paycheck. But we went a step further. We said, listen, we're going to charge a flat fee, very transparent. Here's what you get. Here's what you pay, just like you do with your account. But we created a bonus structure with most of our clients. See, I like getting bonuses, but I don't want to get bonuses for doing what Blue Cross wants me to do. I want to get bonuses for doing what the employer wants me to do, what the patients and employees of that employer need me to do, which is two things, improve outcomes and lower costs. And when my compensation was tied to lowering costs, miraculously, I found ways just, I mean, we're not talking two, five, 10%. I can show employers how to save 20, 30, 40% in just the first year on what they're spending, typically with double digit reductions in year two and three after that. So I know that sounds fantastical. I know that sounds, oh my gosh, I'd kill for just my rates not going up again, let alone down 30 or 40%. But if you knew how many hands are in the pot, how many things are adding to the inflationary trend of healthcare, to the overprice of healthcare. And lastly, if you really saw what I see every day, and this is some of the beautiful things of our healthcare system, cost and quality in healthcare are inversely related to each other. 
See, we have access to quality of almost every provider and every facility around the country. We already had access to pricing, but with the pricing transparency laws, at least for the health systems that have complied, which is about 40% of them, we can now see actual pricing. When you overlay cost and quality, you find that the lower quality providers are almost always at the higher end of the spectrum of cost. And furthermore, the hospital systems that people think are the high quality systems in a given market are typically the lower quality ones. And the ones that they feel are lower quality are typically the higher quality ones from a pure data perspective. So what we do is we build health plans outside of the traditional carriers because they literally won't let us do a couple of things that make common sense. Let me tell you just one. The way that doctors are paid in most cases is, again, a misaligned incentive with the patient. Part of what drives a doctor's compensation in most cases is something called an RVU or a relative value unit. And it's a measurement, among other things, of how much money they're helping generate in the healthcare system that they are employed by. So when a doctor wants to do an MRI, they're going to send you to, most commonly, to the hospital-based MRI, the same system with which they work for. Number one, it's easy for them to make referrals within their own system, and it maximizes their compensation. But a hospital-based MRI is typically going to be somewhere between $2,000 all the way up to $8,000, and an employee is going to have to fund part of that through their deductible and coinsurance. We've developed direct pay relationships with about 4,200 radiology centers around the U.S. We pay on behalf of our clients somewhere between 250 and 650 for that same MRI on that same machine. So within our plans, we say to that employee, we don't prevent you from going anywhere. Most employers won't allow us. But if you go to that hospital-based MRI, your deductible and coinsurance is going to apply. You're going to have to pay thousands of dollars. But if you go to this other radiology center a mile down the street, We've made an arrangement so that your employer will pay 100% of the cost. You'll have no copay, no deductible, no out-of-pocket. Because would the employer rather spend 50% of $4,000 or 100% of $400, right? It's easy math for the employer. And then if that MRI results in a necessary surgery, let's say like an orthopedic surgery, this is where cost and quality really makes a difference. Uh, most general hospitals tend to be a jack of all trades and a master of none. And they have really high overhead because they have to have very expensive machines on standby that may not get used for months or even years. But everyone has to contribute to that versus an orthopedic specialty hospital, for example, where all they do is orthopedics. Well, of course they do orthopedics better when it's all they do. And they typically tell you don't come in for your planned procedure if you have a cold or a cough or an infection. Come back another day so their infection rates are way lower. Their readmission rates are way lower. Their outcomes are way better. And their pricing is way lower because they're more efficient at those, doing those procedures. And we've seen difference in like knee arthroscopies where it's $15,000 at an orthopedic specialty hospital. It's $80,000 with worse outcomes at the general hospital. So again, from an employer's perspective, would you rather your health plan pay 75,000 of the 80,000, leaving your employee owing five grand, which most employees don't have? Or would you instead offer to pay 100% of the $15,000, get your employees back to work quicker, more uh, higher quality of life, and owing nothing, all while saving your health plan tens and tens of thousands of dollars? Again, the Buka models won't let you do this. So basically recapping, you're saying that what you do is when you work with an employer, which is radically different than the traditional benefit managers or traditional 
Buka sponsor, the uh, insurance, large insurance carrier sponsor benefit managers is that you look for, for instance, like you're saying, radiology testing, you're looking for non-hospital-based testing sites. And your, your point is that it's uh, same quality, same machinery, same technology, state-of-the-art, but um, radically lower costs. Uh, same thing with uh, surgical procedures, et cetera. And it makes sense for the employer to pick that entire cost up because it's a fraction of what they otherwise would pay. What other areas of care delivery do you also find alternative, high quality, low cost uh, well, alternatives for, for the employers and employees? Uh, and the second question is, so uh, just practically speaking, if you were going to work with an employer anywhere, I mean, I, I think before we got on, you mentioned to me that you, you were at the same time working with an employer in Alaska, which is a few hours behind you, and a, an employer in, in Israel, which is a few hours ahead of you, long days. So I would imagine you would have to, in those cases, find all those alternatives, uh, both in Alaska for that employer, as well as in Israel for that employer. And so just, you know, again, the second question is that practicality, is that what you have to do? And, you know, how easy or hard is that to do? So a couple of things, other areas, I mean, we look for every area we can to lower costs and improve outcomes, but some of the bigger areas are um, place of service for infusions, for example. Again, having it done at the hospital is going to have much higher costs, higher infection rates. We can move people to an infusion center or even a home infusion therapist where they come to their house and do it weekly or monthly, depending on what the infusion, infusion requires. But another area is prescriptions. And Every employer of any size has this one drug dogging their system, like some, you know, $50,000, $80,000, $100,000 a month drug. It's usually on a spouse. It's not even on an employee. And we have great ways to make that drug substantially less, sometimes even zero. And I'll treat, uh, treat you guys to one of our strategies. And if any of you are with a large carrier, uh, either fully insured or self-funded, I encourage you to ask them if they'd be willing to do this. But if you've ever heard at the end of a drug commercial, they say really fast and really low, if you cannot afford your medication, AstraZeneca may be able to help. What they're talking about there is something called a PAP or a prescription assistance program. And this was uh, the born out of the Medicare Part D legislation. So when George W. Bush II signed Part D, it was the, the, the first time seniors had any drug coverage ever through Medicare. And it, it made the U.S. the largest buyer of drugs overnight. And the price in that is set in that law where the government cannot negotiate. And we pay about five times higher price than most other governments pay for, for buying drugs for their citizens. But one of the concessions the drug companies had to make to get such a ridiculously high price was they had to offer this PAP, but only if two things exist. One is that person makes a certain multiple of the federal poverty level. Now, that multiple is tied to the price of the drug. And so the drug companies have shot themselves in the foot a little bit because the people can make well into the six figures and still qualify. There's the second qualification, though, that makes it a little more difficult. They must have no coverage for their drug. That means that either they're uninsured completely or that drug is specifically excluded from their health plan. Now, if this is a drug one of your employees is already taking, we know it's not excluded from the health plan because they're currently taking it. Otherwise, you wouldn't know about it. So now you have this drug that's being taken. But you see, one of the things that most employers don't know is the way that most pharmacy benefit managers, the entity that manages the pharmacy within a health plan, makes money is something called spread pricing, which is where they mark up the price of the drug quite substantially. 
So the other qualification for a, a patient to qualify for this PAP is for the uh, drug to not be covered under the plan. So imagine for a minute if an employer looked up the PAP online. It's not always easy to find, but the employer goes out of their way for this one high-cost drug, and they see that the member, that their employee qualifies from a financial perspective. So then they call up the insurance company and say, hey, can you please remove this one drug from our drug co covered drug list? Because if you do, we're going to help this member get this drug for free. The manufacturer is going to ship it to them at no cost. Their insurance company or PBM is going to say, we can't do that. They'll give a whole host of reasons, but none of them are true or real. The real reason is, is that they're going to lose a lot of money on filling that drug every time they fill it. So where we work with PBMs that don't make money by filling drugs. And so they give us total formulary control. So when we see that occur, and we do frequently, we make sure they have their fill of medication. We remove the drug from the coverage. And then we have a person whose sole job is to walk the member through that application process. We've already pre-vetted it. And now that manufacturer is forced to ship that drug at no cost right to that employee's home. It's amazing that you do that. For the majority of drugs, though, you just mentioned something, which is that you don't work with traditional PBMs. Is that correct? You you work with all just like you work with alternative radiology and alternative surgical sites, and uh, you also work with alternative PBMs. Do you have one that you work with, or do you just many? There's a few, but all of them share a couple of things. Number one, they. Um, they don't get, they're contractually prohibited from all the games. And you know how we spoke about how insurance companies make money and it's largely on that medical loss ratio. Well, PBMs have about 72 different sources of revenue and they are not held to a medical loss ratio. So it's no coincidence that every large insurance company has purchased a PBM or in one case, a PBM purchased an insurance company because the PBM can mark up these drugs to much more than a 15% margin. I mean, I've seen a thousand percent markup or more on drugs through the PBM. In other words, the price the PBM pays the pharmacy is one-tenth or less of the same price that the PBM charged the plan for that same drug. Why aren't more employers using someone like you or I don't, I don't know if there's others like you who, and, and how would I know? Let's say if I've got a company with 50 or 100 or you know, 5,000, whatever it is, employees, how would I know who is a you know, transparent value-based benefits manager versus the rest? And if I did know, I, I'm, I'm assuming people know you're out there and others like you are out there. Why, why aren't we using you more? Well, I mean, we're relatively busy, but luckily because we mentor dozens and dozens of folks around the industry we have and around the, the, the country, we have uh, a much broader reach and, and a lot more bandwidth. But I think there's a perception from employers that bigger is better. They think the bigger the broker, they must be getting better rates. But I promise you, the bigger the broker, the more incentivized they are. They're not getting a million dollar bonus like I used to get in my small agency. They're getting a $50 million bonus from United or Blue Cross. And they're getting the executives on private jets flowing out to headquarters of each insurance company for dinners and fancy. I mean, those things are being done. And the bigger the broker, the more they're being done. I think there's a perception that the bigger the health system, the better the health system. But again, bigger in healthcare is typically worse. And the same thing with insurance companies. The bigger the insurance company, the perception is the better the pricing, the better they can use leverage. But I, while I agree with that, 
they are using that leverage and they, the bigger they are, the more leverage they have, but their leverage is opposite the interests of the employer. So what I think is the biggest obstacle is um, this perception. And it's a problem of, I think, psychology. In the U.S., we tend to intermingle the words healthcare and health insurance as though they're one and the same. And if you ask most people in the U.S. who provides their health care, they're going to say Blue Cross and Blue Shield. Blue Cross and Blue Shield provides zero health care. Your doctor provides health care, your pharmacist, your nurse. Those are providers of health care. And our health plans don't restrict members from going to anyone they want to go to. But what it does do is it removes the handcuffs that the insurance carriers have allowed to put in place in the form of PPO contracts that not only require substantially higher inflated starting prices, which result in, by the way, higher ending prices, but completely removes the ability to see, measure, change, enact rules that make sense, like we described earlier, like waving out of pockets. And so there's this perception that if I change from Blue Cross and Blue Shield to some no-name insurance company, that um, even though our plans are partially self-funded, so the insurance company is the employer, there's this notion that they're also going to some no-name healthcare, which is just simply not the case at all. Can you give an example of a, an employer you've worked with or are working with in terms of almost like a case study in terms of what kinds of outcomes and results you've achieved? Yeah. So um, we just presented to one of our existing clients um, a couple of weeks ago, and they're headquartered in New York, uh, Westchester County. In a, that's a very high-end area. It's where I grew up. Um, and a little bit challenging from a healthcare perspective, New York City and, and Westchester, although they're, they have locations throughout the U.S., so they have 493 employees on their health plan currently. We did a, a calculation. So they've been, in a, they've been a client of mine for 20 years. So for until five years ago, though, they were in the traditional model. It took me a while to get them to really embrace this. So I had 15 years prior to that of what their rate increases were. And all I did was take the first 15 years, and then I trended it out 10 more. Okay. Then I took the first five years in our model and I compared it. What would you would have spent if you stayed with Cigna in this case? What did you actually spend in our model? The so far savings in the first five years versus what they would have spent versus what they actually spent is a collective $35 million of savings on under 500 employees in five years. And if you trend that out for the next five years, so again, you continue with those same signet increases they were getting, and I actually artificially increased the trend that our plan is on currently because for the last five years, it's been on a negative trend every year, but I know that that's not sustainable. At some point, it's going to flatten out. So I just flattened it out now. It's going to be a cumulative $75 million of savings by the time the next five years elapses. So 75 million over 10 years with 35 million already realized in the first five. Furthermore, I constantly get hit up by what we call these point solutions. And one of the big spends for most employers is musculoskeletal, so the orthopedic stuff. Well, this is a bunch of arborists and they drive commercial trucks and they're up in bucket trucks and they're very physical group. Their total spend on orthopedics last year for the entire group was $283,000. Every MSK program that I've sent this to is like, this has got to be wrong. This is too low. We've never seen an MSK spend this low in this group. Well, part of what we did 
was because we kept saving money, we kept implementing more benefits and lowering out of pockets, the exact opposite of what's occurring. So one of the things we did was we put in a no cost massage every month for every member last year. It bought a ton of goodwill. The employees are loving it. We also added in 20 visits of no-cost physical therapy to encourage members to go to PT before going to the orthopedic surgeon. And many of them took us up on that. And so we avoided dozens and dozens of orthopedic surgeries, which, of course, is better for the patient and better for the health plan. And so those are the types of things that we're able to do. When we're incentivized to improve outcomes and lower costs, when we're paid more, the more we improve outcomes and the more we lower costs, you just increase the likelihood of that occurring. Yeah, those savings are impressive in such a small group. I uh, I was trying to do a little bit of the math in terms of so per year it would have been about seven million uh, over those, and that's a lot for just a small five hundred employees. I mean, imagine if you know you had ten thousand employees, what those the savings could be. I mean, it's just it's profound, you know. And you mentioned a moment ago, and this is an important point that you're lowering the cost of care not by reducing the amount of care and not by reducing preventive proactive care. You're in fact lowering the cost by the opposite, by adding more care, more upfront preventive proactive care, like you were just talking with musculoskeletal. I imagine you do the same like with chronic diseases like high blood pressure or diabetes. Can you say what what you're adding to that uh, in terms of the benefits? So one of the things that we've invested a lot of time and resources and education is enhancing primary care. If you, I started to talk before about how the average doctor is compensated. And let's talk about primary care for a second in particular. If they work for a large health system, their pay is typically impacted by two things. One is that RVU, how much money do they help generate within the healthcare system? So they're incentivized to send you for high cost care. But the other one is the volume of patients they see in a day. The more patients they see in a day, typically, uh, the more their compensation is. The problem is the more patients they fit into a day, the less time they spend per patient. So one of the things that we've really embraced is something called direct primary care or enhanced primary care. And this is a primary care physician that has stepped outside of the traditional fee-for-service lanes, which is the most common. Typically, they've set up their own shop. And instead of being paid based on the number of services they provide a patient and the number of patients they see, they instead charge a flat monthly fee, a very reasonable fee, and they never, ever bill insurance. So we're able to embed this into a plan, and it allows for that physician to have far fewer patients assigned to them, their patient panel size, as it's called. That allows them with substantially more time per patient. And if you look at the statistics, if you gave a primary care doctor the necessary time to do everything that his or her training taught him or her, then you would find that for about 82% of America, that physician can provide 100% of that patient's care. So the majority of Americans would never need to go outside of their primary care physician. That includes people with hyperlipidemia, hypertension, diabetes. I mean, unless they're severe, unless they're really acute, unless you have multiple, multiple comorbidities, a primary care physician can treat that and more, mild anxiety, mild depression. I mean, they are trained to treat those things. And David, let me just let me just add to what you're saying. So, you know, the picture is when you limit a primary care physician, you say you could, your livelihood is dependent on these RVUs. You've got to do piecemeal medicine, churn and burn in and out. 
not only does the primary care physician not have the time to form a trusting uh, relationship with you, they can't, to your point, get into, uh, find out, uh, you know, things about you, uh, really understand your contextual issues, the social determinants of health, all the things that we know actually determine the major outcomes of care. And in the end, what happens, and we've seen this, is all you can do, all I could do is basically, if I've got 10 or 15 minutes, you know, at most, and I'm, I'm just back to back and flying through, I, I've got to actually refer you out. So that headache you have, instead of actually taking the time to treat it, which most primary care doctors should and can do, you, you know, half of what a neurologist sees now is migraine headaches, right? And so so the costs go up, so I'll send you to the orthopedist, to, to the neurologist, to the diabetologist, you know, and, and on and on and on, all these ologists, instead of, to your point, you know, again, as someone who practiced primary care for many, many years, I think this is, this payment structure, the fee-for-service, RVU-based payment structure has decimated, decimated primary care. Who in their right mind would want to go into a field where you go in there because you actually want to spend time with people and get to know them and help them and get to know about the context of their lives? Otherwise, you, you'd go into something else, right? You want to do that work, and then you're told, oh, by the way, you can't do that. You've got you know seven to 12 minutes, and you've got to check all these boxes and do all these things. And then on top of this, of course, you've got on top of you know seeing patients back to back all day, you've got to do all the population health management uh, on all the patients that are not seeing you in the office. And so uh, it is an insane proposition and then no wonder there's so much burnout and no wonder. And it is a really, really bad cycle. And I'll get off my soapbox in a second, but it's driving up the cost as you're pointing out. It's lessening the number of people who are going to primary care which again is a cycle which is just continuing to raise the costs as more and more people go into specialties, higher costs, and quite honestly, as we all know, the outcomes of care have not improved over the last few years. If anything, they've actually worsened. And we know public health has worsened. We're seeing rates of depression and anxiety, rates of obesity, um, again, the control of basic, basic things like diabetes. I mean, not, not improving, despite the fact that we have brilliant, dedicated, passionate people in healthcare who are trying to do the right thing. Um, and it's not their fault. It's a fault of a fundamental system. And that's why you're saying you're going outside of the system looking for these physicians um, and providers who are saying, just like you, I'm not going to go the traditional path. I'm going to find a different way to pay for this. Um, they're really analogous to you. They're looking, you know, they're saying, I want to get paid on making you better, not on doing more to more people, right? That's right. And the, the average broker is paid in a way that's analogous to the fee-for-service doctor. The more they do, the more the costs go up, the more money they generate for the insurance carrier or healthcare system, the more money they're paid. And inherently, that makes sense. It's just we're disingenuous in how we're presenting that to the people that are ultimately footing the bill, which is the employer and the employee. And that's where I think it needs to change. So how can you vet? You asked me a question earlier. How can you vet out your broker? One of the organizations that I'm part of that you mentioned the founder of, which is Health Rosetta. If you go to healthrosetta.org, you can actually find a compensation disclosure template. Ask an executive of your broker's agency to sign that. And if it's a Lockton or an Aon or a Marsh, you're not going to get it back signed, not just because they don't want you to know where they're making money and how much they're making money, but they probably don't know how much of it is actually attributable to you because they're getting these big bonus checks that's aggregated over thousands of employers that they put with that particular carrier. And so it's hard for them to even be honest on that form, even if they were inclined to. But don't you want to know how your broker is getting paid? Shouldn't you know exactly how much and how your broker is getting paid and under what circumstance? So 
that's what frustrates me about this. And, and once, you know, that necessity is the mother of all invention. Once I tied my actual revenue to actually doing what the client wants me to do, I had to go find ways. And luckily I found a lot, a lot of ways. And I will tell you guys this, it is not that scary or that complicated. As a matter of fact, I went to very little college and the college I did go to was for photographic technology, hardly something that lends itself to what I do today. But I honestly believe that I learned everything I need to learn to fix healthcare by the time I finished ninth grade economics class. I just needed to know where to look for it. I think you're probably um, being a little uh, humble here, but uh, you're a smart guy. You're really doing the right thing here. So I just want to go back to this issue of, so you're finding direct primary care providers who are sort of taking a, a captated primary care so they can, you know, spend more time with each individual patient, provide the care better, not have to refer out to all these ologists, which again, nothing against specialists at all by any means, but um, it does increase the fragmentation of care, does increase the cost of care. It does diminish the value of the primary care physician and what they actually can do for you. You know, in terms of, let's say, diabetes, hypertension, you, you have an employee, you know, just want to be very, very clear because you're, you're saying this. I just want folks to understand this, that it's not that people are getting less care. That's not the way the cost is, is being reduced. In fact, they're getting more care and better care and more proactive preventive care, uh, which is why wouldn't anyone want that? So, for example, with high blood pressure, diabetes, you've got employees, let's say they're on insulin or some sort of diabetes medication. What would an employee of a company that you're uh, managing the benefits for, how would that be different for them than, let's say, for someone in a typical um, fee-for-service managed benefits model? So it really depends on how that employer lets us set it up. Typically, with the enhanced primary care plan, we don't do any service to the employer or the patient if we just kind of tack on this enhanced primary care but still let employees go wherever they want to go. So when employers are educated and buy into the enhanced primary care model, the way that we've set it up around the country with every employer we've done it with so far is the employees are offered two plan options. One is where there is this primary care home and they need to go through that primary care home, much like a gated HMO used to be, just properly set up and properly compensated to the physician. Um, And then we offer a plan where members can see any provider they want. Within that any provider plan, we pay for care very differently, and we incentivize members to go to those providers that are actually providing demonstrably better outcomes by waiving the out-of-pockets when the members go there. So we typically take their current plan and match it, same co-pays, same deductibles as their in-network benefits, but we've taken what was their best-case scenario before, right? Because typically in a traditional plan, you have in-network benefits and out-of-network benefits, and your out-of-network benefits are worse than your in-network benefits. We take their in-network benefits, what was their best-case scenario, and we make that their worst-case scenario. So right off the bat, we improve the plan from a financial perspective. But then we completely waive out-of-pockets when members allow uh, us to, to use the concierge team to steer them to where the quality is high and we know the pricing is fair and transparent upfront. And so even if employees though continue to go where they've always gone, we still save a tremendous amount of money for that employer because by removing the handcuffs of the traditional PPO network, we actually are able to audit the bill to a greater level. We're actually able to command the price instead of letting the insurance company command the price for us. So we still save tremendous money even if employees are not allowing us to steer them to those places. 
So it is, this is almost kind of like the nudge of behavioral economics. You're not saying no, you're just saying if you want to go to more costly, lower quality providers and testing sites, et cetera, you can go, you'll just pay for that. Whereas if you just, you know, if you go to higher quality, lower cost, preventive sort of treatment and care, you actually save quite a bit as an employee. The employer saves money either way, but we substantially improve outcomes when employees take that incentivization to go to that higher quality provider. I'll give you one quick example from a clinical perspective. Hysterectomies. The average woman, when they need a hysterectomy, they go to their OBGYN. Now, here's some statistics on uh, hysterectomies. There are about 550,000 hysterectomies done in the U.S. each year. There are about 58,000 OBGYNs. That means the average OBGYN does eight or nine hysterectomies a year. Do you think the average sports player that's at the top of their sport practices eight or nine times a year to be the top athlete? No, they probably practice eight or nine times a week. So think about this for a second. Most OBGYNs, because they do so few hysterectomies, they rely on the techniques they learned in medical school, which is typically open hysterectomies, open surgery. If they wanted to do laparoscopic, they would have to invest dozens of hours of training, hundreds of thousands of dollars of additional equipment, and then once they start billing a laparoscopic hysterectomy, the average insurance company is going to view that as a less invasive surgery, so they're going to reduce the reimbursement for that surgery. But a laparoscopic hysterectomy is really good for the patient. It's typically two very small incisions. You typically don't need opioids with a laparoscopic hysterectomy, just ibuprofen. The recovery time is one to two days instead of one to two weeks. The infection rates are lower. But most importantly, the pricing is lower. The average hysterectomy in the U.S. is $38,000. We have a, a arrangement with a, a network of gynecological precision surgeons who actually think obstetrics and gynecology should be two different specialties. They each do three to 400 hysterectomies a year, and they have a 97% laparoscopic rate. We have a prearranged, pre-negotiated, all-in bundled price of $11,000 versus the national average of $38,000. And a bundled price is important. In the traditional world, if there's an infection, a readmission, or a redo, that's on the patient and the health plan. In a bundled price, that is on the provider. And surprise, surprise, when they're not paid to make mistakes, they make mistakes less frequently. So the outcomes are better. The pricing is one-third the price. The patient gets better quicker. And again, we would waive the out-of-pocket so that employee or that spouse can get that hysterectomy at no cost to the benefit of themselves and their employer. A moment ago, you talked about this, you know, gatekeeper uh, phenomena where, you know, again, you're sending to this. And I just want to underscore this is, I mean, folks are going to remember the days of the 80s and 90s when we had that. And the gatekeeper back then meant less care and not necessarily better care. I think what you're talking about is is better care. And I just, I just want to kind of underscore that. How do you find these direct primary care, these providers that offer this? Is it easy? Is it, you know, as you go into geographies, uh, are you seeing an increasing number of them? Also, just want to, again, you know, just to close this point out is how do you know they're higher quality? Are, how are you measuring that? That's a great question. So um, the, the movement largely around these providers that are leaving the fee-for-service environment is called the direct primary care movement, DPC. And I don't want you to confuse that with concierge doctors. Concierge doctors charge a very high fee, and they still bill insurance. That doesn't solve the problem. Direct primary care providers, however, charge a very reasonable fee, and they never bill insurance. So when we build this into our health plan, that monthly fee is paid by the employer, and the member pays nothing when they go. 
But I think the real difference is the amount of patients assigned to that provider. In a typical fee-for-service primary care doctor, they'll easily have two, three, four thousand patients assigned to them in their panel to feed that the volume of patients they need to see every day. In a direct primary care relationship, he'll typically see three, four, maybe 500 patients assigned to that provider. So the first thing is, is they don't need to poke you and prod you to get paid. They can treat you over the phone, for example, if it's appropriate to do so. But they can spend more time with you. When I did my intake with my direct primary care provider, I spent two hours at that initial consult. And he asked me all sorts of questions no doctor has ever asked. But every time I call him, like my back has been bothering me. He knows everything about me. He knows what other medications I'm taking. He knows when it's hurt in the past, what it felt like. I mean, he's just, he, he knows me so much better. So, you know, I think all doctors are good, but when you give them the time to do what they were trained to do, that makes a difference. And by the way, it makes the doctor's life better too. This isn't just about the patient. The doctor's not spending 40% of the time just coding HICFA forms to, to bill the insurance company. Um, so I think it's really that time, but we do have access to quality of physicians around the U.S. We have a couple of repositories for that, but I think one of the best ones is called Quantros, which has been collecting data on providers for a couple of decades. And I'm actually able to look at patient safety. If there are surgery, I can look at readmission rates. I can look at infection rates. I can even look at what procedures they're doing the most frequently and on what gender and what age group. So a lot of uh, employers say, well, can you give us a list of the good orthopedic surgeons? And my answer is not really, because if one of your employees is a 28-year-old male who played sports through their entire life, including college, and he, he or she is in amazing shape, and they need a knee, a knee arthroscopy, and at the same time, you have another employee who is maybe um, you know 63 years old, she's a female, she's getting ready to retire, she's obese, type 2 diabetic, and she also needs a knee arthroscopy, that might be a very different skill set of surgeon to manage those two different patient uh, clinical states. So we actually can look at that and find the ones that see patients like that patient the most with the best outcomes. And so that's how we look at quality. But we also know that the cost is important too. So we don't just look at quality. We also make sure that they'll accept a reasonable upfront transparent price. And the more high quality doctors are more likely to be willing to do that. What is the database you're going to that you're looking at for quality? We go to a bunch, but from a physician perspective, the one we go to the most is called Quantros, Q-U-A-N-T-R-O-S, Quantros.com. You can go to their website. I know we're over time, David, and I really appreciate your taking the time to speak with us today. Last question. If you uh, had an audience of large employers, what would you say to them? And also, before I forget, actually, I'm just looking at my notes here. I actually did want to mention something. Uh, I saw on your website, you have a conference coming up in February, uh, early February. I think it's the 6th through the 9th. I love this. It's called U-Powered Benefit Symposium. U as in Y-O-U, Powered Benefit Symposium, an event for bold benefits trailblazers. Love that title. And I see Dr. Macquarie as one of your keynotes. Um, so what do you mean by U-Powered? And what makes this an event for bold benefits trailblazers? Well, um, I think really this is about you. And the, the you in this case is the average broker or consultant. I mean, are you tired of just delivering higher and higher costs every year? 
but it's also you, the provider. We're going to have dozens and dozens of clinicians there, doctors uh, that have left the traditional fee-for-service system, some that are still stuck in it. Uh, we're going to have hospital administrators, uh, many of them former hospital administrators. We actually have a panel with a former fee-for-service primary care physician, a former executive at Cigna, and a former hospital CEO, all of whom are going to talk about how perverse the incentives were when they were on the other side. We're going to have employers there. We're going to have employers that are currently in our model, and they're going to talk about where the difficulties are, right? Because this involves change. I'm not going to deliver different results without walking a different path, but also the successes. I mean, we've had not just tremendous financial success. Actually, that's the easy part. The part that I want employers to really hear and clinicians is the successes in patients. For example, one patient was going for back surgery at Cleveland Clinic. And Cleveland Clinic was demanding a $71,000 deposit up front. Well, I find out that this is not back surgery. This is corrective back surgery to uh, fix a surgery that went awry but this patient was going back to the same surgeon and the same provider. And despite the fact that Cleveland Clinic wanted $71,000 upfront, plus they said, we don't know what it's going to be afterwards. I was able to reach out to a buddy of mine named Dr. Richard Kube, who owns a, a facility in Illinois called Prairie Back and Spine. And one of his specialties is fixing the, the mistakes that other surgeons made. He owns his own facility, so he controls the pricing, and he gave us an all-in bundled price of $21,000 to fix this patient's back. And the doctor actually, you know, everyone thinks Cleveland Clinic, they're the best, and they're really good at some things. Back surgery is not one of them, but um, the doctor actually called up the patient, made them feel comfortable, did an office visit the next day, and the patient wound up going there, and he's never felt better. He's been dealing with chronic back issues his whole life, and the back surgery only made it worse, the initial one. He's finally pain-free, symptom-free, back to work, not on disability, uh, and we saved at least 50000 to the health plan, maybe more. And so it's great to hear that anecdote, but what I find reassuring is I, I'm assuming that you went to Quantrose or some other database and looked at, at this uh, back surgeon's, you know, not only his cost, but his quality and outcomes. Correct. Uh, I'm assuming that they were just as good as, if not better than the ones at Cleveland Clinic. Is that correct? Substantially, substantially better. And wow. we don't just look at the provider. We've got to look at the facility quality too, because a really good provider at a really bad facility is no better than the opposite. So we look at both the facility quality and the provider quality. Quantros lets us look at both, but there are other things we can look at for facility quality, like LeapFrog is one. Um, the CMS quality score is another, which you can go to the Medicare's website and look that up yourself. So there are some things that people can do. I find that as much as this information is hard to come by, and it is, it's, there's also very little demand. We, we want more background and reviews on the vacuum cleaner we buy on Amazon than our provider that's going to cut us open. Dave, I know we're, we're over time. I, you're busy. You've got things to move on to. Again, the conference is in February. People could go to the ePowered Benefits uh, website and see this conference, ePowered Benefits Symposium, an event for bold benefits trailblazers. I have to say, uh, if I can make it, I'm going to be there. Um, I think it's fantastic. So, David, I just want to thank you so much for being with us today and, and shedding a light. And for those of us who don't do this every day, and, and I've, you know, I've been in and out of employer healthcare for years uh, inside uh, doing work on it, but 
it's a little bit uh, complicated. And so it's great to hear from someone like yourself who can, you know, take that complexity and just make it very straightforward. And, and again, so grateful for, for you and for uh, colleagues like you, you know, Dave Chase and others who are really trying to under ferret out the truth and trying to do the right thing on behalf of uh, people, of employees and their families and, and employers. I, we need more of this. I definitely will follow up with you. And, and David, as I do every episode, I conclude by thanking all the folks out there, all of you who are doing the hard work uh, each and every day of taking care of patients, or those of you out there who are supporting those who are taking care of patients. The work is so critically important to, to individuals, families, communities, our society, especially in the past few months and a couple of years uh, in this uh, COVID pandemic. Can't thank you enough for the work you're doing each and every day we bring this podcast and this message to you uh, i hope you understand not as a critique but as hopefully a way to make healthcare better for everyone including for the providers of care my friends this is zev newworth on creating a new healthcare. until next time be safe and be well